Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. Well, uh, I'd like to welcome now um, Monica Jacobson-Tennyson to our pulpit. She's already told you a bit about where she's going. She has been active as an intern in the Corvallis Church and in the Salem Church, so they're going to be sorry she's moving out of Oregon even more than we are. But she's going to talk to us today about how to live beautifully. We're really looking forward to it. Thank you, Monica. I have two readings to open our time. The first comes from the Press Democrat of Santa Rosa, California, February 15, 1951. This is a letter to the editor. Dear Sir, I see where the Big Dipper is breaking up and will be an entirely different shape in about 50,000 years. Is there nothing we can depend on? (laughs) Signed, disgusted. (laughs) The response. No, there isn't disgusted if you come right down to it. You must try to realize that nothing stays put forever and act accordingly. It is true that the five central stars of the Big Dipper are rushing toward the sun at eight or ten miles a second, and that eventually the Big Dipper will look like something else. This will be tough on people whose only interest in life is something the shape of a dipper. (laughs) But there is a brighter side to this picture. The real name of the Big Dipper is Ursa Major, or the Greater Bear. And my hope is that in 50,000 years, it will look a lot more like what it's supposed to be. Whatever happens, it couldn't look less like a bear than it does at present. (laughs) Long, long ago, when Ursa Major was named, bears probably looked more like dippers than they do today. You can't depend on bears either. And the second reading, a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, titled Red Brocade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed. That way, he'll have strength enough to answer. Or... By then, you'll be such good friends, you don't care. Let's go back to that. Rice? Pine nuts? Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. 
That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So the title for today's sermon comes from a book by American Buddhist Pema Chodron titled Living Beautifully with Uncertainty and Change. And this book was written in 2012, well before our current levels of uncertainty and change. So perhaps this tells us something about the ever-present existence of change in our lives. Pema Chodron first writes about the human desire for certainty and constancy and the fact that we cannot have it. And out of this grew the Buddhist tradition thousands of years ago, which teaches about not trying to grasp or hold on to the way things are, but accepting the fact of impermanence, which is a gargantuan undertaking, right? I am preparing to uproot everything in my life and move across the country, and I am not really coping beautifully with it. I am resisting (laughs) mightily, except it's also a beautiful thing when I can lean into it. So there are three commitments that Pema Chodron offers us for living beautifully with uncertainty and change. The first commitment is committing to not cause harm. The second is committing to take care of one another. And the third is committing to embrace the world as it is. So what does she mean by these? First, when we commit to not cause harm, we commit to be present in the moment so that we can notice our own habits. We can notice what it is that we do or don't do that may be harming those around us. And then we can make conscious choices to act differently. This is hard to do in anxious times because so much of our brain is taken up with worrying about what's happening. And so we are just reacting and reacting and reacting out of habit. But if you can slow that, if you can stop and think, now wait a minute, is that really what I want to say? Is that what I want to do? Is this going to do harm to another if I thoughtlessly act this way? you can begin to enact the first commitment. And when you do that, you may find that those habits you have developed are about protecting yourself. And when you pause them, you may discover some of the pain of living in a world of anxiety and uncertainty and change. And when you discover that pain, you can then let it move through you and you don't have to be controlled by it any longer. You can accept that the Big Dipper is changing. You can accept that your life is changing because this is part of what it means to be alive. Then we move on to the second commitment, committing to take care of each other, which sounds so beautiful when we read it in a poem, but can be very challenging to do in our daily lives. This is, Pema Chodron says, not only a commitment not to do harm, but a willingness to notice pain and to do something to alleviate it. And living in the world today, we have 
far too many opportunities to notice pain. We are surrounded by so much suffering, the suffering that we carry and the suffering that we witness in our world. And it can feel overwhelming to think about how we might commit to do something to alleviate that pain. And we have to say to ourselves, to our egos, which are primed with a survival instinct that says, you know what, it's too much to take care of everybody else, but I'm just going to take care of me. We need to be able to say to ourselves, I think that we can handle taking in some of the pain of others and doing what we can to alleviate it without destroying ourselves. One way we do this is by coming together in community so that we are not alone trying to witness to and alleviate the pain of the world. Pema Chodron suggests that we see this commitment beginning in a commitment to treat everyone we encounter as an honored guest with something to teach us. This reminds me of the practice that comes out of Benedictine Christianity of receiving every person as though they were Jesus, the most sacred teacher of that tradition or the tradition that comes out of Hasidic Judaism of trying to see the prophet Elijah in every person you meet. Now, let's take a, another version of that in case Jesus or Elijah doesn't work for you. Let's imagine that Carl Sagan is the most incredible spiritual teacher you can think of. This is probably true for my husband. I didn't ask him to confirm, but he loves the work of Carl Sagan. So let's imagine Carl Sagan has come to my home unexpectedly. But of course, I open the door and I say, Carl, come in. We're so delighted to have you. Sit down. We, ha we have nothing important going on. We, we want to spend this time with you. We want to offer you food and hospitality. We want to hear about your life. Now, it's one thing to imagine Carl Sagan or Jesus or Elijah or the Buddha and it's another thing to say, oh, someone is knocking on my door. Maybe they are here to try to convert me to a different faith tradition, and I, I don't really want to receive them as an honored guest. But perhaps I can rise to the occasion, and I can say, what is it that this person has to teach me? What is it that we might share with each other when we honor each other? What is it that we might learn? And from there, I might move to, as I walk down, let's say, a street in downtown Portland, and I encounter someone who obviously has no home, who is surrounded by their possessions, who is begging for money. I might say, you know, this person has something to teach me, and I have something to offer them. If only I can pause and receive them in my life and witness their story and share our common humanity. Now, perhaps your ego rises up when you think about this and says, I, I, can't, I can't receive every single person as an honored guest. What? I can't get anything done in my day that way. I'm very busy and important. Naomi Shihab Nye is wrong. I really am busy. It's not just armor. But you can begin to practice this sort of commitment. It does not mean doing it perfectly, 100% of the time, without any exceptions. It means simply beginning to notice 
when you have an opportunity to receive someone as a guest and to witness to their life and to see what you can do to alleviate a little of their pain and perhaps to allow them to alleviate a little of yours. Because one of the secrets of being present is that being present to and with each other does a surprisingly large amount to alleviate the pain that we feel. Simply witnessing and being witnessed does a lot to ease that burden on us. This path, Pema Children writes, is traditionally called the path of the hero. It takes great courage to choose to open our hearts and our lives to other people. It's a giant undertaking. <coughs> she says, just begin with short periods of practice. One person today I will receive as an honored guest in my life. I will open the door to others just a little bit. I don't have to fling it wide, wide open right away. But I can open it a little, and I can keep it there. And I can see what arises in me and what happens from our interchange. And the third commitment is to embrace groundlessness, living in the reality of constant change. So in this place, if we have undertaken the first two commitments, we are living in the truth of what is in the present moment. We are not living in our ideas of what the world is, which may involve numbing ourselves to what is difficult or may involve reveling and kind of wallowing in the difficulty of the world, right? Perhaps you've reached that rend your garment stage in the current political climate where you think, well, I can't ever enjoy anything ever again. The world is awful. That's also not the truth of what is. The truth of what is is much more complicated than that. So we can be present to what is. We can be present to who we are and what we are doing not simply acting out of habit, but making choice. And then we can connect with, Pema Chodron says, the preciousness of this sacred world. It is not less precious or less sacred because there is pain in it. Things are not less precious because they end. Whether that is a good conversation or someone's life, Things are no less valuable because they come to an end. And in fact, perhaps they are more valuable because everything someday comes to an end. When we have moments of grief about these inevitable endings and about change, Buddhist teachings tell us that to sit with the grief, to let it move through us, will reveal to us the depth of our love and our gratitude for that which is ending. When you feel sad about the death of a loved one or the change of something in your life, you can push that sadness away or you can say, yes, I, I feel you. I receive even my sadness as an honored guest. And I let it move through me. And on the other side, I find the depth of the love and the gratitude that I have for what has been in my life. Pema Chodron writes further, when we can be present with an emotion without any distractions, we find out very quickly how insubstantial and how fleeting it is. 
What seems so threatening, so solid, so lasting begins to dissolve, giving us an immediate experience of impermanence as the feelings arise, dwell, and then pass away. We feel an emotion and it feels like it threatens to take us over, but if we stay open to it and look directly at it, it either disappears altogether or morphs into something else. Fear might become sadness, anger might become hopelessness, joy might become vulnerability, because when emotions pass away, we never know what they will become. And I would add that my experience is that in all of these, if you can sift deep enough, they eventually all become love. Perhaps not for what started the emotion, but eventually you will find the well of love that comes through us into the world. Whenever I study from other religious traditions, I ask myself, what is Unitarian Universalist? about these teachings, or what form might these teachings take in our tradition. And our universalism teaches us that we are part of a great stream of love which comes through us into the world. Historically, this was referred to as the love of God, but today we can simply call it love because the word God does not work for all of us in the same way but I think the word love does. We commit to practices that open us to bring more love into the world through our ability to witness to our own pain and the pain of others, through our commitments to make change in ways that alleviate the pain of others, and through our own practice of sitting in whatever way makes sense to us, meditation or prayer or reflection, sitting with what arises in us and letting it move and move and be transformed until we find again the love that comes through us with every breath into the world. Now, this question of referring to this as living beautifully I think is worth unpacking just a little bit. What does it mean to live beautifully? Blogger and activist Glennon Doyle wrote once about one of her daughters asking her, she said, Mommy, am I beautiful? And Glennon Doyle thought, well, I mean, yes, of course, she's beautiful. I look at her, she's my daughter and she's beautiful. But I don't want to teach this little girl that whether or not someone likes looking at her is her worth to the world. And so Glennon said, Tish, every time you look at something beautiful, it fills you up with beauty and that is what you are. You are full of beauty. So our last task, with my apologies to Pema children, I am adding a fourth commitment. Our commitment is to witness to the beauty of the world and the beauty of our lives, to be open to it and soaking it up. I have a memory I cherish of sitting in a committee meeting at the UU Fellowship of Corvallis we were talking about the pledge drive and why we give to the church. And I looked across the room at these two women, both of them friends of mine, very average-looking, 60-something white women. And they were so beautiful to me. And I, and I missed several minutes of the meeting trying to figure out why 
do these women look so beautiful to me? And I thought, well, we have laughed together and we have cried together and we have worked together and we have protested together and we have sung songs together and I have witnessed their lives and they have witnessed mine. And perhaps that's why they are so beautiful to me. It was one of those Thomas Merton moments. Perhaps you've heard the infamous, often quoted line from Thomas Merton, who was an American Trappist monk, who one day was standing on a street corner in Lexington, Kentucky, looking around at the beauty of the perfect strangers going about their business. And he wrote, there is simply no way of telling people that they are all going around shining like the sun. But perhaps if we practiced receiving each other as guests, perhaps if we opened our lives a little more every day to the fact that things change and yet we can welcome in what comes, maybe we would see each other shining more often. Maybe we would be able to recognize that we are also shining like the sun. So what does it mean to live beautifully? It means to reach this place where we are open to what is happening. We are soaking in the love and the beauty of the world and we are radiating it back out. May this be our goal and our commitment today and in the days to come. And now I would like to invite you to settle in for a moment of meditation. There is a small change to the liturgy. I will be offering the moment of meditation. One of the metaphors that the Buddhist tradition uses, which I cherish, is that of the lotus blossom. The lotus sinks its roots deep into the mud and the muck and the murky waters. And from what it takes up through those roots, it produces beautiful blossoms. And we are called to live like lotus flowers, with our roots deep in the muck of the world, the beautiful and the messy all mixed in together, the pain and the grief and the love that comes through us. So today, as we share a few moments in silence, feel yourself doing the work of the lotus. Take in everything that is and feel yourself bringing forth a beautiful blossom.
we do have time for dialogue with Reverend Monica, and um, would you like to ask her a question? I know she'd like your input, so would you like to come up here, Monica? I always enjoy this part. Every time I'm here, you have such good things to say. Um, recently, I was I was part of a project um, based on Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark. And it strikes me that one of the impediments to welcoming the guest is that there's so much fear in the world and fear of the other, and that we have to keep an attitude of openness and hope and positive expectation rather than always fear in order not to close that door and block out the possibility of connection to, to others and to the beauty of the unknown guest. Yes, I agree. And um, in that same book, Rebecca Solnit writes, I don't think these are exactly her words, but she says that hope exists because uncertainty exists. And so the very fact that things are uncertain and things are changing means that we can influence what happens as opposed to everything being locked in and static and unable to change. So I, yeah. She argues for activism, in fact, uh, based on hope. Uh, and you can't engage and be active if you always live in fear. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Macy, another Buddhist teacher, talks in terms of active hope. Mm -hmm. um, the story I kind of wanted to tell was, I used to work in the financial district in San Francisco, and one lunchtime I was on Mission Street walking behind a homeless man, and he was just, uh, in, it was wintertime, he was in a big overcoat, his head was that was low. He was moving very slowly, and as he walked, I could see that both of his shoes had big holes in them. And I looked up, and we were right in front of a shoe store. Hmm. And so I thought, oh, this is a sign. I'm supposed to buy this man a pair of shoes. So I got up behind him and started to tap on his shoulder, and he did not notice me. Um, I got around in front of him and tried to look in his face, and it took a long time for him to finally come to terms that there was this other human being trying to connect with him. And when he did, his eyes were really blurry and like it had been a long time since he had looked into anyone else's eyes. And I said, I motioned to the shoe store and I said, you know, I want to come in here with me. I want to buy you some shoes. Mm -hmm. And when he got what I was saying, he cleared his throat for a while and then he looked at me and he said, I can tell you're a child of God. Mm -hmm. He said, um, I could tell you a very long story, but the bottom line is that in this lifetime, my job is to buy my own shoes. Mm -hmm. I walked away from that in tears. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I just wanted to say, it's not related to the sermon, but just that I was so sorry to hear that you're moving so far away. <laughs> but, so appreciate when you have come here and the very wonderful things 
to say you give us the two one and think about and additionally you know, more today that you gave us. And I just want to wish you much luck as you move to new adventures and you will be missed here, but we will we wish you much success and enjoyment and all that in your your next step. Thank you. I, I will miss visiting you all. I will miss being in Oregon. I keep saying my one, you know, complaint about this move is that Massachusetts is so far from Oregon and couldn't we just pick it up and like stick it in the Columbia Gorge? But <laughs> apparently you're not allowed to do that with geography, so a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, well, I probably won't be alive in a million and a half years, but Massachusetts might be. Yes, once you drive through New Hampshire and Vermont, you'll probably forget about it a little bit. Maybe. Um, as you've been thinking, or speaking, well, you were thinking and speaking both, yeah. Uh, I was wondering also why... Uh, I have been really saddened and touched by the death of Anthony Bourdain, mm -hmm. and I realized that watching his programs taught me so much about being open to all kinds of people and on culture, and the, the main thing he was teaching us was connection. Um, and I also realized that I had gotten somewhat over being offended by some of the words he used, and I'm now reading his book, Kitchen Confidential. Uh, it's, he's really ragged around the edges. <laughs> but his, his attitude about the other, about other people is so great. And so it's interesting that you can get away from some of your own prejudices and be taught by someone entirely unexpected. I don't know if any of you guys have felt the same way about him, but anyway, do you do you think he was a Buddhist? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know he was a man who, well, I don't know him, obviously, but I, I know he was a man who struggled a lot with his own demons, as many people do, and I think when you really wrestle with some of the hardest things in your life, it can bring you to a place of more openness but it can also bring you to a place of great sadness and sometimes sometimes the sadness is too much, which I think maybe was his story. But I don't know him, I don't know. Eric, do you want this back? <laughs> Did you do something? Good. Okay. Uh, it was actually a comment uh, on the first reading you did, mm -hmm. uh, the Big Dipper. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of Big Dipper as a thing, but it's not. It's just an image we see in the sky of stars, and it's not a two-dimensional image. It's a three-dimensional image. Mm -hmm. And if you were, uh, depending on which fantasy century you live in, you get Captain Kirk or Jean-Luc to take you to some of the parts <laughs> of the galaxy, it isn't there. The stars are there. Mm -hmm. And the point, the, my point in that is, when you look at something, there are a lot of different perspectives, and they don't all look the same. Mm -hmm. And they may not even be unrecognized. They may not be able to recognize one from the other. And I think that's an important thing to think about when we when you're talking about everything you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think it all relates. Yeah. With excellent for a story. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I think that um, you know the other thing I think about when I think about constellations is what 
pattern-seeking, pattern-creating creatures we are as humans. And in many ways, it's good for us to be able to say, oh, that, that looks like a dipper. That looks like all kinds of things, right? We find animals in the clouds. We find patterns in the sky. And yet, we can get too stuck in our own idea that this is the only pattern that anyone would ever make out of this. Whether that's, well, obviously, it's a dipper, right? No matter what planet you're on, it has to be a dipper. Well, no. Or from my perspective in my life, obviously these things mean this. Well, they mean something else in someone else's life. So to always be aware, what kind of patterns am I creating? And could I make another pattern out of this? Could I imagine someone else would have made another pattern? Can I be in that place of uncertainty means hope, right? This does not inevitably mean only this pattern forever, but it could be something else. So that's wonderful to lift up that even the stars, which we pretty clearly believe just stay where they are, they aren't really only where we think they are. And we don't actually stay where we think we are either. Yes, and we don't stay where we think we are. Yes. Just a star is so far away, they look like they stay where they are. Yes, it's an illusion. Yes, it is. Anybody else? Well, fittingly, I believe the next thing we're going to do is sing a hymn about stars. And I don't have the hymn number with me, so I will let Madeline introduce that part.